Psalm 130, our summer study of songs, has brought us to this psalm, which has its familiar points, I'm sure, for you. I want us to consider this theme of waiting for the Lord. Now, waiting has gotten a bad name. You've experienced waiting rooms, right? And you're wondering if they lost your paperwork because they keep coming out and calling other names of people that came in after you did. And you wait. You've waited on hold and waited and waited. And then you start to wonder if my call really is important to them, right? And if you really want to slander waiting, then talk about Christmas or your kid's birthday and wrap it up with, but you'll just have to wait a little longer. We know waiting as passive. We seem to do nothing as time just marches on slowly. But what if waiting could be more active? What if waiting involved more than just checking the time? In our study of Psalm 130, we will see how waiting should be active and not passive. Waiting involves an intentional pursuit of God, of his word, of his character. Now, to be clear, in our waiting, time may pass. Weeks of waiting on the Lord, years of waiting. But all the while, we are growing in the knowledge of God. While we wait. Waiting is clearly a Bible concept. We just affirmed our faith with a host of scriptures that called us to wait. Psalm 130 is anchored in verse 5. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. In his word, I hope my soul waits. But might it be true that we don't really know what exactly it means to wait for the Lord? Because after all, we're used to the waiting room. We're used to the phone on speaker rattling through the recording. We're waiting on hold. If we transfer that thought of waiting to waiting for the Lord, we're just sitting idly, passing time, and God is supposed to do something. But how do I obey the command to wait for the Lord if it's really God who's supposed to do something? The implication is that waiting is calling on me to do something, which seems paradoxical. Do something in order to wait. Now, there are times when waiting on the Lord may involve very little action. We can picture the Israelites coming out of Egypt and they're on the brink of the sea with the Egyptians chasing them. And God says, stand still, a literal physical standing still and see the salvation of the Lord. Moses would hold up his staff and the, and the waters would part. You may need to be still in a physical way sometimes. But all the time, apparently, according to Psalm 130, our waiting for the Lord is an active pursuit of him. So our goal this morning is simple, to understand what it means 
to wait for the Lord. Because maybe that's just kind of become part of our vocabulary, our dictionary of what we might call Christian ease. We use these words, wait on the Lord, and it sounds good and it sounds encouraging and it sounds right. But when we go home this afternoon, we really don't know what it means to do that other than to pass the time. Let's walk through Psalm 130 to see a five-fold definition of waiting that calls us to a pursuit. Look again at verses 1 through 3. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Number one, waiting for the Lord means pursuing a clearer dependence on God's mercy. A clearer dependence on God's mercy. When the text calls us to wait for the Lord, that's the heavy anchor in the middle of this psalm. It is built on this opening verse that calls us to understand in a deeper way the mercy of God. Verse 1 reminds us that we're in trouble. We can't do this. Out of the depths I cry to you. Hear my voice. I need help, the psalmist says. And then in verse 2, speaking of that help, he says, but I don't deserve it. This cry for help is actually an appeal to your mercy in the form of help. But the help that I need is not help that I deserve. So this plea is a plea for mercy. And so we have to ask ourselves, what are the depths of verse 1 that are causing this drowning feeling? Why a cry for mercy in verse 2? And the answer is because we're all reminded too often that we are not perfectly righteous. We sin. Out of the depths, I cry. Well, let's try to define those depths. Hear my cry for mercy. Somehow mercy is helping me understand the depths. If you, O oh Lord, would mark iniquity, my iniquity, could I stand before you? The great weight, the great drowning, sinking feeling here for the psalmist is his own shortcomings. He has fallen short of the glory of God. He has sinned. And he realizes that this sin will drown him unless God is merciful. There are reasons why Jeremiah tells us that God's mercies are new every morning. Two of them at least being because it's true that God is a God of mercy. And it's true that we are in daily need of that mercy. So out of the depths I cry. And every morning God answers with new mercies for that day. Wait on the Lord by depending on his mercy. 
Now verses 3 and 4 unfold a particular application of God's mercy. These verses show us that waiting for the Lord means pursuing a richer understanding of God's forgiveness. The question of verse 3 is somewhat rhetorical. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? You know the answer to that question. No one. And that's a problem. If the Lord would mark iniquities, every single one of them, who could stand before his holy presence with any claim to innocence, with any claim to standing, with any claim to heaven? No one. But now notice an important word of contrast. With that question hanging in the air, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? And we feel the sinking answer, no one could. But then our word of contrast, but. So whatever was just said is big and meaningful, but it's going to be met with something else. But with you, there is forgiveness. Waiting for the Lord means pursuing this richer understanding of God's forgiveness. It means you ask the question. The next time you lose your temper, the next time you envy somebody else's nice homestead, the next time you complain about the job that you have, the next time you're angry at your spouse or lose it with the kids, stop and ask yourself, if the Lord would mark iniquities and hold me accountable for them, could I stand in the day of judgment? And we'd realize how often forgiveness flows from God's mercy to us. The psalmist says it in a vague, general way. With you, there is forgiveness. feels very impersonal. It lacks all the New Testament details that we love, that we sang about in, in Christ alone. It doesn't talk about the incarnate Son of God. It doesn't talk about His righteous life, His atoning death, His bodily resurrection. It just says, with you, there is forgiveness. Because that's the great hope. Who can stand? No one can. But there is forgiveness. There's this hope that's held out for us that waiting on the Lord is a good thing because when I'm despairing over the sinking feeling of my sin and I know I can't stand before the Lord, I'm told to believe that there is forgiveness. You will encounter people that hear the good news of the gospel and they will say things like, I don't think God could ever forgive me. That, that's just a lie of the devil that he is bombarding, that he is blinding that sinner with. And the light of the gospel that shines from the face of Christ needs to penetrate that darkness with this simple message. Who can stand? No one. But with you, O oh Lord, there is forgiveness. 
So be done with the guilt of your past. We sang that. No guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. That through Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness. That's the solution. The problem, we're drowning in the depths. Who can stand? The solution, there is forgiveness with you, O Lord. You see, in our waiting for the Lord, we're coming to understand a familiar story in Luke's gospel. We come to understand a father who in his readiness to forgive is running to meet the son who had wasted his life and in his return isn't even convinced that he will be forgiven. The psalmist is saying, you don't understand the running father. He's ready to forgive. And in our waiting for the Lord, we are pursuing a richer understanding of God's forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, when Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the, grief, the guilt within, look up. Look up and see him there who made an end of all your sin. You've already preached that message to yourselves, to one another. But hear it again from Psalm 130. Wait on the Lord. Think much this week of the forgiveness that you have received in Jesus Christ. Well, we need to think of the ending on, of verse 4. Waiting for the Lord means pursuing a bigger view of God's glory. There's probably a better word than bigger. Probably overused. But it's the best I could come up with to just expand our thinking here. And this verse does that because it challenges, us, uh, it challenges us with its words that it chooses. Verse 4, But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. We would think of that prodigal son returning with a kind of fear that maybe the father won't forgive. We almost see the spirit of forgiveness as contrasted with fear. So we might expect the text to read, with you there is forgiveness that you may be loved or thanked or praised even. But instead the psalmist says, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The Bible here is is rattling our, our understanding of even this word fear. I think the rest of the psalm is helping us understand what this fear really is. We began in this desperate need of mercy. Then we realize it's because of our own sin. We can't stand before God, but he's a God of forgiveness. So now we're forgiven and in this experience of being forgiven, we see face to face this, this gap between the holiness of God and my sinfulness. 
And in that moment of being forgiven, we, like the prodigal son, are, are stumbling over, well, I, I'm sure you won't even take me as a son, and, I, and I'll just be a servant in your house. And, and the father is already planning a party. He's not even listening to that babbling doubt. The psalmist is saying, I never understood holiness and the full glory of God until I came to him as a sinner deserving the wrath of God. And because of faith in Christ, the Father says, forgiven. Enter into the joy of eternal heaven. The psalmist says, in that moment, I understood holiness. I understood God and, and what he truly is, this God of perfect, just wrath. And yet also a God of perfect mercy, a God of holiness, righteousness, God of anger, God of love. And all these attributes on display in the salvation of sinners so that when I think of forgiveness, I don't think of, oh good, everything's great now. Me and God can hang out forever. No, quite the contrary. I marvel that the creator of the universe would even tolerate a plea for mercy. And to think of being forgiven wells up within me reverence, worship. We're staggered at the thought of once a rebel and now a son. This God of every perfect virtue has forgiven us. And so we fear him, we worship him, as Hebrews calls us to, with reverence and awe. This is, this is why somehow in our services we seek to communicate that it's just not casual. Reverence and awe are not casual. It doesn't, I'm not talking about a dress code. I'm not talking about the the length of the sermon or, or the seriousness of the fellowship or the silence in the auditorium. Some churches, you know, they ask you to be quiet when you step into the auditorium before the worship service. We don't feel the need to do that, though at times it might be very helpful. When Hebrews says we worship with reverence and awe, I think he's leaning on Psalm 130, that the joy of forgiveness isn't expressed in, in a buddy-buddy camaraderie. It's expressed in reverence and awe that the holy God has made a way for sinners to be right with him. Now, verses 5 and 6 shout the theme of waiting. Teaching us that waiting for the Lord means pursuing a deeper hope in God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. Your greatest need this week is not to see God miraculously change your circumstances. Your greatest need this week is to believe that God is enough. 
to wait for him. Not to wait for him to do something, but to wait for him. That he is enough. Now, by all means, pray for God to change your circumstances. Pray that in faith. Pray yielding that his will would be done. I'm not saying we could never say, Lord, this is terrible. Would you please rescue, save, heal, preserve? You can pray for God to change your circumstances, but you must pursue a deeper hope in God's faithfulness. You must be able to say, my soul waits for the Lord. In his word, I see him revealed there. I see his promise, so I will hope in that. You say, but, but what about the life around you that's raging storm? I know, but I'm waiting for the Lord. I'm waiting to know in my heart that he is faithful to ride out the storm in my boat. And should he choose to say, peace be still, great. But if he chooses to let the storm rage, I will trust him because he is who I was waiting for. Waiting for the Lord means we're hoping in a deeper way in the faithfulness of God. You must pursue this deeper hope so that when sorrows like sea billows roll, you say, it's all good. In my soul, I have the Lord in my boat and he's enough. Now think about this watchman for a minute. More than the watchman, the psalmist says, I'm waiting. This watchman who is waiting for the morning. We don't know if this was a reference to the priests waiting for the morning sacrifices. We don't know if this is a military type watchman or just kind of a city position posted on the city walls and making sure everything's okay at night. But we can generally picture a watchman on a city wall waiting for his shift to end. Any of you ever worked the, what we'd call the third shift through the night? I did it one summer at an ice cream factory. You could eat as much ice cream as you wanted through the night, and I did. Uh, and after that summer, I didn't eat ice cream for about two years. Uh, but come four or five o'clock, no matter how fast the night went, those last couple hours would drag on. Or you're driving through the night, you know, from Christmas at Grandma's or something, and those last couple hours that morning are just terrible. But here's the thing about this reference to the watchman, waiting for morning to come, longing for the sun to rise. Equal to the longing for the dawn was the expectation of it. So as much as the watchman is longing for the dawn to come, equally as much is the full expectation that it's going to happen. There is no uncertainty in this watchman as if, oh man, I wonder if morning's going to come because that would be relief. No, the psalmist is borrowing heavily on the expectation the sun is going to rise and the watchman knows it. His shift will end no matter how long it feels to him. 
More than that, watchman, the psalmist is saying, I wait for the Lord, meaning I fully expect that he'll be there as I need him. I fully anticipate my need for him. I'm longing for him. I want to know him better. I want to know his presence. I'm waiting for that. But my waiting is a confident expectation. There really is no uncertainty here. And that's what the psalmist is aiming at. The watchman knew something, that the sun was going to rise. Even if it revealed an enemy approaching the city, it doesn't matter. The sun is going to rise. Are you that certain about the faithfulness of God? So that come what may this week, you know this, God is faithful. And it may be you'll stun yourself upon hearing the bad news or receiving the diagnosis or whatever might happen this week. You'll climb out of your car after a fender bender and you'll say, God is faithful. That's what the psalmist is saying. I'm waiting for the Lord. My soul waits. I hope in his word. I wait. What do you mean by that? I mean, just like the watchman knows the sun is going to rise, I know God is faithful. That's what waiting means. Wait for the Lord. By deepening your confident expectation in his faithfulness, he will not fail you. We, we affirmed our faith from Psalm 52.9, saying that we wait for God's name, for it is good. There it is. The sun has risen again. And my eyes have seen his goodness. Finally, we see that waiting for the Lord means pursuing a bolder declaration of God's salvation. Look at verses 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. With him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Well, with this language of redemption, we start, we start hearing in our minds this gospel language. Oh, it's the Old Testament, so the psalmist may not have known all the details, but he knows of that original promise of Genesis 3 that the good news would include this redemption, this forgiveness of sins. God was going to remedy this tension, this conflict, the enmity that, enmity that sin has caused. Instead of an angel waving a sword reminding us we can't get back to God, God will make a way to fix this through the seed of the woman so that same angel will be singing and rejoicing every time a sinner is restored to fellowship with God. The psalmist may not have known of the incarnate Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, and his crucifixion and resurrection, but he would have known some of the general concepts. From Adam and Eve, he knew of a sacrifice that was made to provide a covering for sinners. And so he could say, Israel, hope in the Lord. He's able to do this. He is able to forgive and redeem iniquities. 
from Noah. He would have known about believing God's words and entering into the ark of safety to weather the judgment of God's wrath. From Abraham, he would have known that God himself said, I will provide myself a lamb. And that lamb would, would physically be substituted for the one who was intended for the altar. From Moses, he would have known that the blood of a spotless lamb splattered on the house would protect that house from death. Oh, the psalmist knew something to base this exhortation on. Trust in the Lord. He is able to deal with your sin. He knew that with God there is forgiveness. Now Nahum the prophet echoed the psalmist's question here. The psalmist wrote, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? Nahum the prophet said, Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. We sang the answer. And on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. It was poured out on Christ. Matthew's account of the crucifixion includes this fascinating detail. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. I think Matthew wanted us to be sure to answer Nathan's questions. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces. On the cross, God poured out his wrath on Christ. And just so we'd link it in our minds, who can stand before the wrath of God? Nahum said, when his wrath is poured out and the rocks are split, Matthew says, look, the wrath of God poured out on the sun. And look at the rocks. They're split. Matthew's answering Nahum's question, who can stand before the Lord? Jesus can. Jesus can and he has. He has stood before the wrath of God and taken it all for those who would repent and believe. Psalm 130 is not just a prayer that God will help us when life gets hard. No, it's a prayer to help us because sin has ruined us. And only faith in Jesus can provide the rescue that we need. The psalmist says, declare this gospel to each other. That Jesus suffered the wrath of God on sin. Declare it with boldness. Tell people this week, hope in the Lord. I don't know what else is going wrong in your life, but it sounds like you need the Lord. Hope in him. He can deal with this mess. He can deal with your failure. He can deal with your sin and brokenness. Declare God's salvation. Tell believers 
to trust in their Redeemer, to wait on the Lord. Tell them that nothing can separate them from his love. And tell the unbelievers that they can't stand before God with their own shoddy attempts at righteousness, but they can stand before God by faith in the righteousness of Christ. Hope in the Lord. With the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem his people from all their iniquities. This is the gospel, the good news, that though we cannot stand before God, there is forgiveness, and it's found in Jesus Christ our Lord. You may end up in a waiting room this week, and I don't know how to fix the problem of waiting there. You may end up on the phone with customer service. I heard the story of Natalie and Marissa trying to travel to and from Echo Ranch Bible Camp in Alaska, and mom and dad being on the phone, being told it's a three-hour wait to figure out how to get your kid on a different flight after it was canceled. I don't know how to fix that either. I hope you like the listening music, right? But with Psalm 130, we can begin to demystify this idea of waiting. We wait by pursuing God's mercy, his forgiveness, his glory, his faithfulness, and his gospel. Teach us, Lord, to wait. Teach us, Lord, that you are worth waiting for. Teach us that our waiting is not in vain. And teach us that our waiting will be met with the morning light of eternal day in your presence. Hallelujah. And amen.